The scripture reading this morning is from John 6, verses 41 to 51. If you're using a pew Bible, the page number is 72 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the, and the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Um, because I sprung it on him this morning to change the verses that were being read, um, there was a miscommunication. It should have gone to 52. So let me read that as part of the reading for this morning. So Jesus says, And the bread that I shall give is my, for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And that's what we're going to get through this morning together. Um, if you notice on the uh, sermon notes page in your bulletin, you have four main points that go all the way to verse 66. Uh, that was a little ambitious uh, for me. Um, we're just going to be covering the first two this morning, and then we'll come back and do the next two next week, and maybe finish out the whole of chapter 6 next week. We'll see. So. I want you to pray with me as we continue our worship. Uh, come to worship the Lord under his word together. Our Heavenly Father, you are glorious and majestic. You're radiant in your splendor. Your glory fills the earth and the angels in heaven continue to worship and magnify your worth and your glory crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Lord, what the heavenly beings can see so clearly, the majority of the world of man remains blind to. 
Lord, we thank you for your grace that has given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand that very reality that your glory is magnified through all your creation, especially through that saving and redeeming work that your Son has accomplished on behalf of your people. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, and we thank you. Thank you that you sent him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we thank you that he's taken away our sins, and we have a witness of your Spirit in our hearts with your Word telling us that this is true. That Christ gave his life to redeem us from every lawless deed so that he might uh, make a people, cleanse and perfect a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Lord, help us see more clearly the great glory of salvation through the gospel this morning. And let that make us more zealous to engage in good deeds for the glory of your name to serve you in the power of the Spirit and in true hope in your promises and in your words, standing upon the promises of God, knowing that they cannot fail and we cannot fall. Help us serve you with a whole and willing heart in whatever areas you have uh, placed us in, in this life. Help us magnify your name, Lord, and give us grace to exalt your name together. We ask for your mercy to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. In our efforts to um, spread the message of Christ, we can often think that somehow, if we just say the right words, or if we just say them at the right time, or we say them in the right way, then we will surely be able to persuade anyone to recognize the truth of Christ and come to salvation. And Very often we can be disappointed when we thought that we've shared the truth of Christ with someone with deep compassion and sincere love for that person, just with a winsomeness and a a power of the spirit that was unusual. And we think certainly they're going to come to faith after this gospel presentation, and they reject it and walk away, we can feel very disheartened by that. If they're not converted, we start wondering, well, what did I do wrong? Could I have said that better, or could I have shown more compassion or patience or proven myself to be a little more understanding, or could I have better prepared to answer that person's question? Would that have made the difference? in bringing that person to salvation? You know, those can be very valid questions that we ask of ourselves, but I think that first and foremost, we need to remember a basic biblical truth about the sinners with whom we are seeking to share the gospel. As 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 puts it, the, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolishness to him. And then he goes on, Paul says, nor can he know them, so he's not able to know them, 
because they are spiritually discerned. And if they're spiritually discerned, then the person who is characterized as being natural does not have the ability to perceive that which is spiritually true. You can be very clear, you can be precise, you can be patient and loving and understanding and wise and perfect in your presentation of the gospel to the lost around you. But if that person is still what Paul calls a natural man, then that person will not be able to receive or know the truth that you're sharing with them. It will always be foolishness to them because the truth of the gospel cannot be naturally discerned. It cannot be discerned by natural senses. You need a supernatural sense. You need a supernatural awakening in your soul if you are going to perceive truths that are spiritual and supernatural. As 1 Corinthians 2.12 puts it, until a person receives the Spirit who is from God, he or she will never be able to understand the things freely given to us by God in Christ. Now why, why go there as an introduction to what we're going to look at here in John 6? Well, uh, simply for this reason, what we're going to see in John chapter 6 verses 41 to 66 is really an illustration of that reality. That no matter how clear, no matter how precise, no matter how perfect you are in sharing the truth of the gospel with the lost around you, unless their spiritual eyes have been opened by the grace and power of God, they are never going to be able to perceive the truth. Let me give you a hint. You can even be Jesus sharing that truth with them. But if their spiritual eyes are not open, they will never see it. Did anyone share the gospel more clearly or more perfectly than our Lord Jesus Christ? No. And even here in John 6, what do we find? At the end of all this, the vast majority of people with whom he's speaking these gospel truths are going to turn their back on him and walk away. See, in John 6, we, we find here Jesus teaching a crowd about spiritual realities, and then we find the multiple ways that the crowd reacts to what Jesus is saying, what he's teaching. And as we move through the stages of this interaction between Jesus and this crowd, we're going to notice a developing pattern. On the one hand, we're going to see Jesus continuing to turn the light of, the light of truth up and to shine it more brightly upon this crowd. Right, so as Jesus progresses in this conversation with them, he's going to be dialing up that light of gospel truth and making it shine more brightly upon them. But on the other hand, we're also going to see a pattern emerge with this crowd. That the more Jesus shines that light upon them, the more confused and aggravated they become. Until finally, their inability to comprehend the light causes them to turn away from the light altogether. Now, was that a failure on Jesus' part? Or was that simply a reality of how the fallen human heart reacts to the truth and the light of God? Well, John 6 is a living demonstration of that truth we saw in John chapter 1, verse 5, right? 
that the, the light continues to shine into the darkness, into the dark-ridden world and the dark-stained human heart. But that darkness does not and cannot comprehend it. And remember, according to Jesus in John chapter 3, it's not until a person is born again of the Spirit of God that he or she will be able to see or comprehend the truth about the kingdom of God. And so we see that truth magnified in this interaction between Jesus and the crowd. And between verses 41 and 66, what we find are really four stages in this uh, dialogue in this conversation between Jesus and the crowd. And we're going to look at two of those stages today. We'll come back to see the other two next week. But the first stage in this conversation is what we're going to call grumbling and confronting. Grumbling and confronting. Verses 41 to 42, we find the Jews complaining about Jesus. Now the Jews, when it says the Jews in verse 41 that's probably not speaking about the total crowd that Jesus is talking with at this moment. More than likely, that's referring specifically to the religious leadership with whom Jesus is speaking, the religious leadership that is among the crowd. That's kind of the designation for how John describes the religious leadership throughout the book of the Gospel of John. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 19 when there was a delegation sent to John the Baptist to find out who he claimed claimed to be. It says that there was a delegation of priests and Levites that were sent from the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, who had the authority to send priests and Levites on a mission like this? It would have been the religious leadership in Jerusalem. Or you see the same thing in John chapter 5, verse 10, where uh, the Jews are the teachers in Jerusalem who are giving instruction about what is lawful and what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, who gives instruction about what's lawful and not lawful for someone to do? Well, that's the religious leadership that is entrusted with that task. And so very often in the Gospel of John, when John is referring to the religious leadership of the Jews, he simply refers to them as the Jews. And since in John 6.59, this conversation with the Jews is happening in the synagogue at Capernaum, it's not far-fetched to understand that the main antagonist against Jesus in this scene is the religious leadership in that synagogue. And the people are going to follow in the path of their leadership. Now, verse 41, it says that they were complaining about him. That is an interesting word in Greek. Gonguzo. There's a, uh, uh, a teacher that I used to like to listen to a lot, uh, Dr. James White. And uh, when his children were arguing in the back seat, he would yell out at them and say, Stop, uh, stop that gongus uh, mooing. Stop that gongus mooing. That's what this is, uh, this is talking about. It's talking about kind of a, a contentious, argumentative, uh, complaining expression of dissatisfaction. Uh, It's translated in verse 43 of the New King James as uh, murmuring. It's the same word as complaining in verse 41. Now, in Greek culture, that word was used to describe an outward expression of dissatisfaction. F.F. Bruce 
described it as a scandalized criticism. That when the, when these, uh, that these people felt scandalized or they felt like they were stumbling over Jesus' teaching and the way that they responded to feeling scandalized by it was to start uh, criticizing it. Right? That's, that's just the natural reaction of our sinful hearts, things that even we believers have to continue to wrestle with, that natural inclination to be critical, right? especially towards teachers. Um, <laughs> it's in good humor, guys. I, I'm, I, I, love, I love you. I love all of you. I'm... You know, what's interesting about this word is that, that in a legal setting, this word was used to describe a critical reaction that the courtroom would make against someone who maybe made a legal claim, but in their argumentation proved themselves unable to defend it. So like to say a legal claim, this is what the law demands, and then they begin to argue with it, and, they, and it just falls flat on its face. Well, the, the, the response of the courtroom would be this gungus mooing, this gunguzo, uh, this complaining, this uh, criticism of the person who made this argumentation. And I think that that pictures exactly what is going on here with these Jews and Jesus. Right? Because Jesus has just made a claim. He's... He's actually made multiple claims uh, to these Jews, but they were grumbling about what he was claiming to be and what he, came, what he was claiming that he came into this world to do. They were criticizing him because in their minds, he was not providing enough evidence or proof to back up his claims. It says specifically in verse 42 that they were, or 41, that they were grumbling because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, that was the point of contention. It was his claim that the man standing before them actually had his origins in heaven and had stepped out of heaven to come into this world. Because, and the reason why they were complaining about that is because, as it says in verse 42, they were saying to one another, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? See, in their minds, clearly, if Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary, uh, the parents that they themselves knew personally, then how could it at all be possible that he actually came down from heaven? Now, to be fair, they didn't have all the details about the virgin birth that we have communicated to us in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. But what did they have? Well, they had Jesus' teaching, which was not like what any other man in, in human history had ever given to them. As, they, as, as we're going to find later on in the Gospel of John, even those who came to arrest him at one point uh, were halted in, from, from arresting him and taking him back to the religious leaders because they said, no man spoke like this man. He spoke with authority. They had his teaching. They also had his miracles, didn't they? Uh, miracles, which in the words of Nicodemus proved even in the minds of the leadership that in some degree they recognized God was with him. It's John chapter 3, verse 1. And on top of that, as Jesus points out in John 5, they had the witness of the Old Testament, making clear that when the Messiah would come, he would actually be born of a virgin. 
That there would be a son given to us. There would be a child born. And the only right way to refer to this human child that was born to us would be to call him Mighty God. But they just could not put the pieces together. They were stumbling over the idea that Jesus had his origins in heaven. And because they could not wrap their minds around how it could be possible that Jesus could truly be from heaven and at the same time be born as a child in this world, they resorted to critically murmuring about him. See, he doesn't fit their presupposed assumptions about reality and right and wrong and truth and untruth. I loved what Dan shared this morning about idolatry in the Sunday school class, Dan Schneider. He spoke of creating idols as seeking to compress the glory of the creator into the image and imagination of man. That's what idolatry is. It's taking the concept of God, our creator, and seeking to compress and limit him to fit within the confines of our own creaturely understanding. That's what these Jews are doing here in the Gospel of John. They are seeking to compress their understanding of reality uh, to, or they're seeking to compress the reality of the situation in front of them into the, uh, the presuppositions and assumptions in their own understanding. And because they could not do that, they responded by rejecting Christ altogether. Now, it's interesting that this word for complaining is the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe the Israelites murmuring and complaining about God's provision for them in the wilderness. Numbers 11, verse 1, in in the context of their desire to go back to Egypt and to have fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions, to sit by the Nile and enjoy a life of ease, at least as far as they could remember, right? We always remember the good things from the past. We don't ever, whenever we long to be back there, normally we we don't recall how tough and difficult it may have been. But they're sitting there and they're they're complaining about this manna that the Lord's giving them to eat, that they have nothing to eat in this wilderness except this manna. And it says because of that, the people complained and it displeased the Lord. Now, I'll just go back to that to point out that it's, it's interesting to realize that here in John 6, 1,500 years later, the people of Israel are manifesting that same hardness of heart against God and against his provision for them. And nothing has changed, in other words, is my point. Right? The crowd is wanting more signs from Jesus. They want Jesus to prove himself by giving them manna, the way that Moses gave the Israelites their forefathers manna in the wilderness. And even earlier in the chapter, right, they wanted him to prove himself by being the king that they wanted him to be and ushering in the kingdom that they were longing to see. And that shows us that amid all the grace and the mercy that God sh- uh, showered upon the Israelites for the last 1,500 years, the, the 40 years worth of manna and all of God's gracious provision afterward in the promised land and under the Davidic monarchy and, and even 
their restoration to the promised land from exile and captivity. Despite all of that grace from God, Jesus is here in John 6 still dealing with the same heart issues that had plagued the Israelites all along. In other words, there was nothing in all of those miracles that God had accomplished in their history. Nothing in His gracious provision that He had showered upon them that had been able to eradicate the spirit of unbelief from their hearts. And so here they are, they're grumbling about the Son of God, longing for Him to prove Himself to them. If they want Him, if they want him to believe in Him, then He needs to do more signs to prove Himself to them. And what kinds of signs are those? The same kinds of signs they had already experienced. Give us more bread. Show us and teach us and prove to us that You are the one like Moses who was to come. And then we will believe. And their grumbling about the Son of God simply illustrates the point that something much greater than miraculous provision of bread or even the glory of an earthly king and an earthly kingdom was needed in order for them to have true hearts of faith that were bowed in worship to God and to his Messiah. And that's exactly what Jesus confronts them with in verses 43 to 46. In verse 43 he addresses their antagonism with a rebuke. I find it very intriguing that he does not interact with their question. He does not explain or clarify or answer the issue that's going on in their heart, that main stumbling block that they're focusing on. How can he say he came from heaven? We know his parents. Jesus doesn't even address it. And I believe probably because that's coming from a speculative heart of unbelief. And Jesus is not going to enter into that kind of a discussion. He says to them, do not murmur. In other words, stop murmuring among yourselves. See, their murmuring was the result of their inability to comprehend the truth about what he was saying to them. And rather than giving them a fuller explanation about the events of his birth and a treatise on the incarnation, Jesus simply calls them to stop grumbling. I don't think we can really appreciate um, how that might have landed on them. Unless you deal regularly with people and witnessing to them and you interact with them the way Jesus interacts with this crowd, it, it's, it's difficult to understand maybe how shocking and jarring some of Jesus' responses are to unbelievers of his day. Well, he says, stop murmuring. And why, why does he want them to stop murmuring? Well, that's because of the reality that he declares to them in verse 44. Do not grumble. Stop murmuring. Because no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, we've already gone through that. But I want to set this within its context so that you truly understand the point that Jesus is making here. For the Jews, they thought that their biggest problem was that they couldn't get all the facts to line up in their minds. They couldn't make sense of what Jesus was teaching them. In other words, Jesus was their problem and they needed Jesus to, to explain himself more clearly if Jesus wanted them to believe. Right? They're on the judgment seat. 
Jesus is in the dock. They are sentencing. They are, they are declaring their judgment over Jesus and saying, all right, Jesus, you want us to believe in you? Prove yourself and we'll believe in you. That's what they believed to be their greatest problem. But Jesus makes clear in this verse that the problem isn't with the facts, nor is their major problem with the claims that he's making. The problem was with their own hardened and unbelieving hearts. That is what made them unable to see the truth. It was their spiritual deadness that made them unable to perceive the heavenly and spiritual realities about which he was speaking. And their grumbling about Jesus was simply the outward expression of a heart that was dead to God. Until God the Father began drawing them to come to the Son, they would never be able to comprehend the truth and be saved. No amount of natural reasoning or miracles were going to be able to overcome the rock-hard, obstinate hearts that were in these people until those hearts of stone were shattered and softened by the saving power of God. And so verse 45, Jesus says, referring back to the promise of Isaiah 54, 13, the only way anyone is enabled to see the truth about Christ and come to him for salvation is if the Father engages in teaching that person about his Son. For it is only those who are hearing and learning from the Father who then respond to what the Father is teaching them by coming to the Son. Now you see what Jesus is exalting there. He is exalting the sovereign power of God over and against the will and the understanding of man. He's putting man in his right place. Jesus rebukes their murmuring by focusing their attention on the real issue at hand which was the inability to believe in the fact that the inability to believe in Jesus had nothing to do with a deficiency on his part it was due to the fact that their hearts were still blinded to the spiritual realities of God Jesus was revealing to them they needed a supernatural spiritual awakening to take place in their hearts in order to discern and comprehend the truth and until that happened they would remain blind to it Now, there's also something significant to notice about what Jesus says in verse 46. After talking, after talking to these sinners and talking about their need to hear and learn from the Father in order to believe, he says in verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. What's the point in making that statement to these Jews? What's the point in saying, you need to hear and learn from the Father if you're going to come to me and be saved? Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. What is Jesus driving at there? Well, I believe what he's saying is that sinners don't come to understand the truth about Jesus Christ through a direct revelation given to them by the Father. Yes, the Father is going to teach them and He's going to confirm to them the truth about His Son, but it's not going to be coming from a direct revelation that He will impart to their minds that is somehow disconnected from the truth that the Son is revealing. 
As if, as if the truth, Jesus is making this claim out here to be the Son of God and that salvation is only by uh, faith in Him and you've got to come to Him in order to be saved and God, is going to, God the Father is going to come alongside a sinner and He's going to give them a separate revelation that's going to confirm the, the other revelation that was already given by Jesus. That's what Jesus is denying in this verse, I believe. The Father, in other words, the Father confirms the truth about His Son in the hearts of His elect people by using the truth revealed through His Son. Do you follow me there? Maybe? Like most of us, maybe? Yes? See, the Father is going, let me say it again, the Father is going to confirm the truth about His Son in the hearts of His elect people by using the truth that was revealed through his son. It's not a truth disconnected from what Jesus is telling us. This is how the father teaches sinners to come to his son. He takes the word that was given to us by the son, the truth that was revealed to us through him, and then confirms it in our hearts and testifies to its truthfulness by opening the eyes of our souls in order to see it. This is wonderful because you know what this does? This solidifies in our minds how central and important this book right here is to our entire walk with the Lord. God is never going to come and give you some revelation that is disconnected or separated from what is handed on to us in this book. I I remember being in a church where on Sunday morning, on Sunday mornings, Jamie would get very uncomfortable, someone would come up behind a microphone and say, thus saith the Lord. And the words that came out of their mouths were not scripture. You know, there's only been one person who's ever seen the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ. There's only been one person in the entirety of of human history who has explained the Father to us. Who is that? That's Jesus This is John 1.18. No man has seen the Father at any time. No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He's done what? He has explained Him to us. Now this this drives us to a central meeting point with, with God that we cannot escape and we can't get around. If you want to know God and if you want to have any interactions with God, guess where you've got to come? You have to come to Jesus Christ, His Son. There's nothing outside of Him that's going to confirm the truth about the Son. There's nothing alongside of Him that's going to help you understand the Son better. You've got to come to the Son and you have to acknowledge your dependence on the Son and receive from the Son the truth that He's revealed to us. Like I said, this is how the Father teaches sinners to come to His Son. And we see this all over the Scriptures. This is, this is John, uh, James 1.18. It was of His own will that He brought us forth by the word of truth. So you've got the sovereignty of God there, and you also have the means by which that sovereign God moves to save sinners. It's of His own will that anyone is born again unto saving faith. And what does He use to bring them to new life? He uses the word, the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners. 
1 Peter 1, 23 and 25 say the same thing. We who uh, are born again, we are born again through the word of God. And verse 25 tells us that word is being preached to us when the gospel is being preached to us. God the Father saves sinners through the revelation that he has given to us through his Son. And so when the Father teaches sinners about the truth and draws him, draws a sinner to his Son as their Savior, he uses the truth the Son himself has explained to us in order to do it. It's a very important point to make and hold on to. As we've been seeing in these verses, as Jesus makes very clear in these verses, men and women will never naturally be able to see the truth of Christ on their own. They need God's power to raise them up to new life and to give them spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear the truth. And that is something, just by way of application, that's something that you and I need to keep in mind as we go about evangelizing and seeking to spread the message of the good news of Christ to the lost that the Lord brings into our paths. Number one, we should start by recognizing that when unbelievers do not hear or heed the message of the gospel, we shouldn't lose heart or be discouraged. Their unbelief um, is not, is, does not reflect upon our belief in Christ. What I mean by that is, the fact that the rest of the world doesn't come along with us in our faith in Christ doesn't nullify our faith in the Lord or make him untrue. We believe because a supernatural work of God has been, done, has been performed in our hearts and has enabled us to believe. And so when we go out sharing the gospel with people who don't believe in, in that gospel message or see the glory or truth of it, we shouldn't lose heart or be discouraged. We should simply recognize that, but by the grace of God, we would be in the same boat. And then number two, we should keep in mind that God's not going to use anything other than the truth of his son that he's made known to the world to awaken dead sinners to that truth and to draw them after his son. That there's only one tool that you and I have been given in order to see sinners come to salvation, and that is to make known to them the truth that God has revealed to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Many may not be able to comprehend that truth, but there will be some who do. God has ensured that that will take place and he will work supernaturally with his word being preached to bring his elect people to salvation. So some good practical instruction for us, good wisdom as we, we take away from our Lord's example here. So that's the first interaction here, the crowd grumbling and Jesus confronting their wrong attitude about him. Now, the second stage of this interaction is what I'm calling clarifying and quarreling. Clarifying and quarreling. In verses 43 to 46, Jesus basically rebukes their antagonism toward him and says, listen, your problem is not me or anything outside of yourself. We are always looking for something to blame outside of ourselves for our own problems. But Jesus is very clear here saying, nope, your problem's not me. I can't be blamed for your unbelief. The problem is your own hardness of heart. You are your greatest obstacle to seeing the truth, in other words. So he rebukes their antagonism with, with that statement and then says, until God changes your heart, you're not going to be able to see and believe the truth. But I want you to notice something really important about what Jesus does next. 
even though he has just said that their ability to believe rests entirely on the sovereign will and good pleasure of God, he does not adopt an attitude of indifference toward them. He doesn't just give up on them and say, well, you can't understand the truth anyway, so I'm just going to stop trying to get you to see it. No, what we find in Jesus is that he does just the opposite. After acknowledging their utter dependence on the sovereignty of God to save them, he then begins to continue pressing them with the truth. Verse 47 and 51, he, he actually continues to declare the same truths he's already made known to them, but he does so with greater clarity. So, for example, he says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. Where else has he, where else has he said that? You see that in verse 40. He who sees the Son and believes in him has what? Eternal life. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, has eternal life. Verse 48, he repeats the same truth he stated in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Verse 49, he says, your father ate the manna in the wilderness, and what happened to them? They're dead. He's already addressed the inadequacy of that bread that the fathers had eaten, and now he's unpacking it more explicitly. And then in verse 50, he says, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Now, all of that is referring back to truths he's already asserted in verses 32 through 40. But in this section, he is clarifying and making more explicit what he's already said. They want him to prove himself to, to them by giving them bread the same way that Moses gave bread to their fathers in the wilderness. And, and as Jesus points out here, what good did that bread do for them? What did that kind of bread accomplish for them? They all ate the bread, but where are they now? They're dead. <laughs> yes, they ate that bread. Yes, it was a miraculous provision. Yes, it testified to the reality that Moses was the prophet of Yahweh. But what good did the bread itself do to those who ate of it? It provided for physical sustenance, but that's about it. The manna God gave them, in other words, was not the kind of manna that could keep them alive. In fact, as Hebrews 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 tell us, with most of that generation who partook of that bread, God was not pleased with them, and their dead bodies fell in the wilderness under the displeasure of God. What good did the manna do for them then? God even swore, verse 18, he swore to those who were receiving that manna from heaven, the forefathers, those whom the Jews are comparing themselves to here in John chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews says, God even swore to them that they will not enter my rest because of their own unbelief. And so Jesus' point here is to get them to reckon with what happened to their fathers, to help them realize that they didn't need more of the same kind of bread that their fathers had been given. They needed something radically different than what their fathers had been given if they were going to come to truly know God unto salvation. Jesus points out, your fathers received the bread you want me to give you, but what benefit did that give them? It did nothing for their souls, 
It did not enable them to have true saving faith in God. It didn't even save them from being consumed under the wrath and holy displeasure of God. So why would you want me to give you more of the same kind of bread? He says in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. The bread of life. That is the bread that gives true life. In contradiction to or in distinction from that typological bread that the Jews were eating, the Israelites were eating of in the wilderness. He says, I've come down out of heaven to do what all of that manna your fathers received in the wilderness could never do. I came to ensure that if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, when we read forever, we just need to keep in mind living forever is not just talking about quantity of life. It's not just enduring on and on and on everlastingly, but it's talking about a quality of life. Having life forever in communion and in fellowship with God. That's the eternal life that Jesus came to give us. Living eternity in a covenant relationship with Yahweh that will never be broken and that will never be able to fail. Jesus says, everyone who will come and feed upon me as the living bread from heaven will receive that life. Now, comparing verses 47 and 51, we understand what Jesus means by eating of the bread. All right, so verse 51, Jesus says, if anyone eats the bread, he will live forever. What does he mean by eating that bread? Well, remember verse 47, Jesus says, he who believes in me has eternal life. That's a similar construction there. It's using the same language to make a point. And so for Jesus, eating the bread means believing in Jesus. Believing in him. I find it fascinating that rather than simply saying, if you want life, you need to believe in me, Jesus expands on the idea of what it means to believe in him and adopts this picture, this word picture of feeding on him. Feeding on him in order to be saved. Your belief is not a one-time deal. It's not a, a prayer that you prayed a long time ago. It's, it's not a decision that you made. Belief is, is a heart conviction that continues to, to go with you throughout the days of your life. It leads to this increasing recognition of your utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ for, for life and salvation, and it, and, it, and it builds within you this greater entrustment of yourself unto His saving care. Feeding upon Him, nourishing your soul with that truth. Now, what specifically are we to believe if we are to have eternal life? What, what are we metaphorically eating? What is it that we are to be eating in order to live forever? Well, verse 51, Jesus makes that explicitly clear. That what we are to eat, if we want to live, is his own flesh. He says, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now here we get to the heart of what Jesus is trying to say to this crowd. And, what, and at the heart of what Jesus is saying to us here this morning. Yes, Jesus came to give bread. But the bread that he gives so that sinners like us might live 
is himself. He is the bread that he came to give so that you and I might live through him. I love John Piper's book, God is the Gospel. What what is the hope of the Gospel? It's the giving of God himself to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce, commenting on this verse, he said, the reader of John's record can recognize this language as sacrificial. Remembering, for example, the Baptist designation of Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. The giving of the flesh here, Jesus is beginning to flower, to expand upon what John the Baptist has already declared. He is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world, right? Because sin is what brings death. And if Jesus came as the bread of life, he has to undo that which causes death to his people. He has to take away sin. If he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, taking their sin upon himself, that is how his people are going to live. He goes on to say, to give one's flesh can scarcely mean anything other than death. And the wording here points to a death which is both voluntary and vicarious. Really important point. First of all, as he points out here, this death that Jesus is going to offer for the life of the world is a voluntary death. Because it wasn't being taken from him, it was something that Jesus came from heaven in order freely to give. Right, John 10, 18, Jesus himself says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Here, the the love of Christ for those whom the Father has given him is put on display so majestically. No one had to coax Jesus into taking our law place. No one had to coddle or, or, or manipulate or twist his arm to get him to be willing to lay his life down for scum like you and me. He came willingly to give his life for us. He came to willingly be the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. Now what should that do to our hearts when we consider truths like that? Shouldn't that willingness of the Lord to lay his life down also confirm for us his willingness to receive anyone who comes to him? To give life to those who will feed upon his flesh. To give life to those who will abandon all hope in being saved by anything other than the Lamb of God being offered for them. His willingness is what emboldens us to come and take hold of Him and take that spiritual food and put it into our spiritual mouths and swallow it down and own it for ourselves. That's what it is to believe. It's not some passive thing. It's a very active thing. You are chasing down the Lord Jesus Christ. You are striving to enter in through the narrow door. You are seeking to grab a hold of Him as if your very eternity depends upon it. Because it does. This is the love of Christ for us. Magnified. We can't begin to comprehend what it is 
to, to submit yourself willingly under the wrath of Almighty God in place of sinners. We can't understand what that will be like for the sinner who's going to go to hell and experience that. How much, how much less can we understand and comprehend the magnitude of what Jesus Christ did for a countless number of sinners? A multitude of sinners enduring the wrath of God, embracing their sin as if it were His own, and receiving and accepting willingly the punishment that was due to them. Due to you. This is what makes Paul say in Galatians 2.20, it was because he loved me and gave himself up for me. That is the truth that I live upon in my life now. Paul says, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you know that love for yourself? Kids, adults, old and young and people who have been Christians for 50 years and people who have been Christians for five minutes and everyone in between. Do you, do, you, do you know? Can you remember? Do you feed your soul upon the love of Christ that motivated Him to give His flesh over for you? This is where true life comes from. We're going to see next week, this isn't just something that we begin to receive at the, at the start of the Christian life. This is how we live the Christian life until the day of glory, by feeding upon this very truth, reminding ourselves of this truth. I don't know if you've ever heard someone talk about the gospel as if it's something that they, that they began to understand a long time ago, and now they need something else. Yeah, I get the gospel, but where's the practical stuff, man? Tell me how to live my life. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I know about Jesus. I heard that all the time growing up in Sunday school, but give me something else. I need to, I need to comprehend something new that will be practical. You know, when I hear someone talk like that, my immediate concern is that they have not yet come to know Christ. Because knowing Christ is the most practical thing that you can do in your life. It's the one pursuit that you are called upon to give yourself to every single day. Jesus says, as you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. You don't go bear fruit for him and then glorify his name and then, and then try to abide. No, the fruit comes out of living a life of holy attachment to Jesus. Or as Jesus puts it here, feeding upon this bread of life. His flesh that He came to give that we might live. It wasn't just voluntary. As F.F. F. Bruce said, it was also, uh, as he put it, it was vicarious. I would change that to be substitutionary. That is, it was in place of others. And this is very clear in the Greek. It's harder to see this in English, but it says in verse 51 that when He gives His flesh, He gives it for the life of the world, or more literally, he gives it on behalf of, or for the sake of, the world. Huper is the Greek word used there. He gives his flesh in place of the world that is going to live because of the sacrifice he makes. The language used here specifically speaks of sacrifice. 
and, and a sacrifice that, that accomplishes atonement on behalf of those for whom it is made. Right? And, and just think about the context of what Jesus has already brought up here. He's already referred to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. They will all be taught of God, which is a chapter describing the new covenant that will be built upon the finished work of the Messiah described in Isaiah 53. And what is Isaiah 53 talking about? What is it all about? It's about the, the, the vicarious, the substitutionary, the willing sacrifice of the Messiah being given over in place of His people. It's the Father placing the sins of His people upon this holy servant, the Messiah. It's the Messiah being stricken. It's the Messiah being crushed. It's the Messiah being wounded and being pierced for our transgressions, bearing our sins in His body on the tree and giving His soul up as a sin and guilt offering for the sake of His people. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about. It's all about the salvation of God's people through the suffering Messiah. And here Jesus is in John 6.51 drawing their attention back to that reality and saying, this is, this is the true bread. This is what you should be seeking. This is what God's been trying to make known to you from the very beginning. It's not about physical bread. It's about this living, holy, righteous sacrifice that will be made in your place that will enable you to live with God. This is the bread that Jesus came to give for the life of the world, his flesh. To give himself as a holy offering unto the Lord in place of ruined sinners. The righteous one giving himself in place of the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. The one who knew no sin being made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The, the, the Holy One who, bearing our sins in His body on the tree, did so so that we might die to sin and live before God unto righteousness. The bread that Jesus came to give in order that the world might live, the living bread, is the sacrifice of His life in the place of sinners. And that is what must be believed. That is what must be fed upon if your soul is going to come to experience life with God through Christ. It's, it's, it's not about your morality. It, it's not. It's not about your regimen or your personal discipline. It's not about having a physique that's immaculate. It's not about uh, being an upstanding citizen. It's not even about pretending to be a good church member and being involved in all kinds of activities. It is about whether or not your soul is truly and sincerely feeding upon what Jesus Christ has given us as living bread. And when Jesus said in John 6.35, I believe, He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. Do you... He's talking about satisfaction there, right? I'm the bread that satisfies. Do you find the satisfaction of Christ in your soul? A, a, a level of satisfaction that drives you away from sin and, and, and actually leads you into living a life of fellowship with God and the paths of righteousness. 
Do you find that satisfaction in Christ or is it still something theoretical that you don't yet truly understand? I'm not trying to make everyone doubt their salvation, but I, I, do, I do wonder. Are, are we feeding upon Christ the way we think we are? I've I got to be honest. When... when When I see can I just be candid? When I see our propensity to think the worst of one another in the church, and, and when I when I see our lack of love practically demonstrated for one another, our, our lack of desire to be the body of Christ. When I see a lack of practical, practically demonstrated holiness in our lives. Oh, yeah, I just didn't get to read my Bible. I just was too busy this week. I was too tired to read my Bible. This, I, I, just, I, just, couldn't, I just couldn't pray this week. I, I just, it, just, it just feels like such a burden, and I'm trying to get into the habit of doing it, but I just don't want to do it. You know what that's saying about you? That's saying that your heart is not rightly aligned with the Lord. You don't want to be in His Word? What do you think that means about the state of your soul? Do you get what I'm saying? Like when I, when I see these kinds of practical demonstrations of fleshliness, in the church, I have to ask myself, are we actually feeding on the Christ that we're proclaiming? We're, we're too busy fighting with one another to, to really own the commission the way we should. We're too distracted by our jobs and careers and success and cars and money and entertainment our TVs, I, I just read an article the other day about how TV is destroying our minds, and yet we won't, we won't shut it off. We won't. I don't mean to go on and on, but, but if we are feeding upon Christ, Jesus says in John 6.35, there is a satisfaction that comes from feeding upon him to our souls, that, that actually causes us, it weans us off of being satisfied in lesser things and leads us in a life of holiness and, right, and, a, and a, a righteousness, but a holy pursuit of more and more and more satisfaction in the one who has truly satisfied our souls. This is the bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world. It was the sacrifice of this holy, the holy God-man in our place. Now, as we close, how, how did they respond to this? this? This greater revelation of what it means for Jesus to be the bread of heaven, the bread of life. Verse 52 tells us that they began quarreling among themselves about it. They began fighting 
among themselves. Their grumbling had now begun to turn violent. That's what this word signifies. It's a, it's a violent fighting uh, among one another. I think F.F. F. Bruce described it as that this is a hot and stormy word. <laughs> that captures it. So what we see there is this progression in their opposition to Christ. That Jesus has just pulled the veil back far more than he had up to this point. It's exposing them to more of the light of the glorious gospel by which sinners can be saved. And how do they respond to it? With greater animosity. Now we shouldn't understand that as them fighting against each other. They're not, they're not quarreling with one another because of what Jesus said. No, they are standing in a united and strong and violent antagonism against Jesus and what he is teaching them. But nothing can unify sinners like their opposition to Christ. <laughs> this is Psalm 2. Why, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? You know, there's only one thing that causes the nations to unite together and plot and make one plan together. That's their opposition to God. <laughs> Otherwise, they're fighting with each other. And you can hear the disdain in what, in what they say. They, they say, how, in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Obviously, they're mocking his teaching and they're interpreting it according to naturalistic reasoning. And again, to make the point, as Jesus increases the light of the gospel and shines more light upon them, they become more and more agitated and filled with opposition against him. Now just, in, just a closing thought. This is how the fallen human heart reacts to truth. The world may respond by getting more aggravated, by complaining and grumbling and arguing more with believers, but for believers, this is our life. This, this is what... This is what sustains us as we live a life of persecution and opposition, as, as we seek to suffer and take upon ourselves the cross that the Lord commands us to take up as we follow Him. This is what gives us strength to do that. Jesus Christ is the crucified. He died for me. How can I do anything other than live for Him? We hold fast to Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. And Jesus swears that as we come to him and we feed our souls upon this truth, we will have eternal life. So I just, beloved, don't be discouraged in our day of apostasy. And in our day where this message seems to be truncated and downplayed and, and even opposed by those who claim to be the church. We live in a land under the judgment of God. What are we going to expect from the people among whom we walk? We may not see widespread reception of the truth of Christ, but just keep in mind, John 6 makes us very aware of the fact that we are in good company. Jesus himself did not see widespread acceptance of his message. He accomplished that work through the preaching of his apostles and through revivals, great revivals throughout human history, and we should pray for that. 
But if we are living in a time and and among a people where God's judgment is upon that people and they are not heeding the truth of the gospel, we should not lose heart over that. We should keep being faithful in feeding our souls upon Christ and proclaiming Christ to the nations. That's what Jesus did. He didn't stop speaking the truth to them just because they weren't getting it. He kept pressing them with it. And so, beloved, keep feeding your souls on the bread of life. And don't allow the world and the flesh and the devil shame you or discourage you or make you cower before the world. Stand with boldness in this day, this great day in which we are called to fight for our king and stand for his kingdom. You're going to do that as you continue feeding your soul upon Christ. So make that your great endeavor and the Lord will make you stand. For he is able to do that. Amen. Father, we do pray that you would keep our hearts fixed upon your truth. Amid all the opposition that the world would throw against us and the deceptive schemings of the devil that he seeks to instigate among us, God, please give us grace to see through it all. To live united with one heart and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, feeding our souls upon the truth. You gave your flesh for us, Lord. You gave yourself as a holy sacrifice in our place so that we might live through you. So please, as we feed upon you in light of that reality, help us know your life and your power operating in our own hearts and manifesting in our lives. Father, we ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you hear a benediction from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood, throughout the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 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 And may it be. Amen.